That's a good song, was it? That was good. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Hunter just read part of it this morning. Philippians chapter 1. My name is Cam Lloyd. I serve on staff here as a pastor, and uh, it's a privilege of mine. It's an honor to be bringing the word this morning. Um, and it's an honor to be bringing this particular word this morning. Um, I have to confess this is actually uh, one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. Um, the Lord has used this many times in my own life to see the riches that are within these verses, um, to pull me out of my deepest sorrows, to give me courage and confidence when I've needed it. Um, but even prior to some of these experiences I've had with this text, I would even say that uh, a verse found within our text this morning is Philippians 1.21. Uh, I would have called it my life verse. It's that chest-thumping uh, battle cry. Um, I mean, I even thought, like, maybe one day I'll get it tattooed on my arm in Greek because it's cooler. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. Don't cover it up. I know you got one. Some of you. But I'll be totally honest with you. Um, it took a while for me to understand how Paul was able to say the things that he's able to say in this text. I lived in total ignorance of that. And to be totally honest with you, I just thought that it sounded better than Philippians 4.13. I mean, to live as Christ, to die as gain. No one has that as their mantra. Um, I just didn't understand. I was clueless until a summer before uh, my freshman year of college, uh, I found myself going on uh, a mission trip with a team of a lot of bright-eyed would-be freshmen um, with the school that I was going to. And uh, we, were, we were gonna take a trip to Johannesburg, South Africa. And man, y'all, this mission trip looked good on paper. I mean, I'm telling you, like staying on a game reserve where you get to wake up to giraffes every single morning. I mean, all of our meals being cooked by expert bushmen. And to be totally honest with you, this was the selling point for me. No matter what dollar I put, put towards going to this trip, it would be deducted from my tuition. This is a great way to start college. An awesome mission trip to an awesome place with, I'll have great pictures and stories. This is a unique experience most people won't get. I'll have new friends when a lot of people coming into college won't have friends. This is awesome. It's going to be full of adventure, full of comforts, full of pleasures, completely free from anything boring or risking for the gospel. I'll be honest, and I confess again that this trip was largely for me, not for the kingdom of Christ. Now, the trip didn't go according to plan. Um, the day before I got to meet the team that I would be going with, I wrecked my car. And by the time that we got there, um, the glorious Johannesburg that I thought I was going to see from the amazing pictures turned out to be largely some of the most impoverished areas I've ever seen in my life. And when we would go and do ministry, it would almost be the exact opposite of what we were told we were going to be doing. If we were going to go play with preschool age kids, we would end up going and washing windows for the elderly. And if we were going to go to a school and hang out with those kids, we would end up going to a juvenile institute for boys who are awaiting trial for the grievous crimes that they committed. Completely opposite, not the same. That's a true story. And while I was actually 
at this juvenile detention facility, I met a boy that would change my life forever. He was my age, his name was Felix. He was actually a former member of the numbers gangs that run rampant through South Africa. And he was there awaiting trial for his participation in a gang murder of a rival gang member. But by the grace of God, Felix ended up here at this facility where believers ran the facility, they presented him the gospel, and Felix was able to see the glories that are found in the cross of Christ. He repented of his sins and he surrendered his life to Christ. However, and he had been there several months, but prior to our team coming there, he received word that he was going to be put into prison for his crimes. He would be sentenced for his role that he played in that murder. And he was terrified. He confessed to me that he thought he wouldn't even make it to his release date because this prison was largely populated with those same rival gang members. This was far from the exciting mission trip that I thought I was going to find myself on. This was not a comfortable trip. This was not a comfortable spot for me. This is no longer a game. This was real. This was a real person sitting across from me. He was my age. He did things that I didn't do, yet he was a brother. He was a brother in Christ. What do you say to him in that moment? He's terrified. What do you say to him? In that moment, I'm thinking, why am I here? Why am I here? This is not what I signed up for. What kind of encouragement do you give to someone who's terrified? who's afraid of his sufferings to come. And it was in that moment that the Spirit of God reminded me of a text that I'd grown what I thought to be familiar with. And at this time, it didn't come to me as that battle, chest-pumping motto. It came to me as a word of comfort. And there, we sat and we read Philippians chapter 1 together. See, Felix's circumstances didn't get better the day that he became a follower of Christ. They were seemingly getting worse. And many of you have probably noticed that your life hasn't gotten better since you've become a follower of Christ. Like no matter how or when you gave your life to Christ, no matter how deep you, deeply you've plugged into a church, no matter how much time you spend pouring over the scriptures, it always seems that you take a step forward, but having to take a step back as well. Never seeming to be in the place that you thought you would be, be in. Sufferings are ever-present. They're always real. And of course, life circumstances can always be traced back to sin. In Felix's case, his own sin but on the other hand, there are also things in life that we seem to fall victim to. We think, I, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this trial and the next trial and the next trial that I'm going through. There always seems to be something seeking to steal your joy and your hope in life. Always seems to be something. And what do you do when you're in the thick of it? What do you do when your joy is being ransomed from you despite your best efforts? despite your best efforts to advance the kingdom of God, because you know that's the calling that's put on your life, no matter your position in life. 
Something's always seeming to trip you up. What do you do when your life circumstances are so heavy that your knees buckle under the weight of it? What do you do when moms are taken too early? Unborn babies never seem to make it. Or when you look at brothers and sisters a world over and they're having to suffer under oppressive regimes that they didn't think would come back. This is where Paul gives us an encouragement. And he does. He says you can rejoice. He says you can rejoice. And you're thinking, no. Some of you in this room are like, no, not yet. I can't. Not now. Paul's saying you can praise God, the God that is in total control. How? And this is where I think the text today is so important for us. Hear me, church. It is only when you see the true worth of Christ that you're able to sing in your shackles as Paul does. When Christ is truly exalted over everything in your life, you can rejoice without fear. And I want to show you this. So Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 12, if you would follow along with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my own imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope, I will not be all at all ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the, in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you, sh you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Let's go before the Lord. Lord, be with us as we pour over to this text. Would you help us to see the things that you want us to see? We love you, Lord. Amen. Do you hear Paul? His language does not match the circumstances that he finds himself in. He's in prison. And if you look at Acts 28, this looks kind of more like a house arrest situation, but still, with a looming execution over your head, this is not a good place to be. And he actually touches on three fears that anybody in his position would find worthy to be fears. If we were in his situation, we wouldn't be doing what Paul is doing. And and yet we find him motivated to praise God in the midst of it. And before you say that this is just Paul, This this is just Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's on a different level than I am. Let me remind you that this letter is largely an encouragement to the church. A church that he loves. A church that fortunately is not in the same position that he is right now. And he's encouraging them to press on to advance the gospel. They have a job to do. This is the purpose of this letter. It's their mission. And let me ask us, I'll ask you this. Isn't this ours? Isn't this our mission as well? To advance the gospel. This is what I'm concerned with this morning. Is how Paul is able to say the things that he says. There's many audacious statements here. Pressing on despite the circumstances is not as easy as it might seem to be. And yet, he uses his own life as an example to encourage this church. And he starts off with one fear by saying, you can rejoice when Christ is proclaimed, even if it's in unconventional ways. Look at verse 12. This is a deeper look into how Paul sees his circumstances. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His imprisonment is not gospel hindering, it's gospel advancing. But look how the gospel is being advanced. Verse 13 says that it's being spread through the entire imperial guard. Verse 15 says it's being spread by people who actually want to do more harm to Paul and the gospel than good. And this imperial guard underlined that. This imperial guard is not a group of people that we want to know what we're doing with the gospel. These are gospel opposers. These are the very people that are keeping Paul in prison. And this isn't just some small band of brothers When it says the whole imperial guard, this is the governor's residence and the surrounding community around this residence. I mean, think about it. If word gets out why Paul is in prison, what could happen to followers of Christ who are doing the same thing? So not only do we see gospel opposers, but we see gospel posers. They're preaching the gospel, not for the right reasons, but out of envy and strife. These guys are spreading the gospel to bring more harm on Paul in his imprisonment than good. But look what it says in verse 18. What then? He asks us a question. What then? What shall I do? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that 
I rejoice. Circle that. It's the first time we see that in this text. In that, I rejoice. This is not the greatest situation for the advancement of the gospel. As missionaries are planning to send the gospel forth, I think they would probably plan a different way than using this text and saying, let's send it to all of the people that would do us harm. Let's rejoice in the fact that people are preaching Christ not for the right reasons. I think many of us have the same fear of being found out. That we preach Christ, we're going to be found out and made out. To be one of them, one of those people, those radical Christians that actually are obedient to the scriptures. I know we spent a couple Sundays talking about the present tragedies and even the potential tragedies going on over in Afghanistan. We've seen videos, we've read articles, we've prayed for them from this stage. We've prayed for them in our homes. And I'll tell you, when I was, um, I'm not a news guy, I don't typically go and seek out the news, but an article stuck out to me, one of many that I was reading. Maybe you've read the same article, but back in July, there were a group of Afghan Christians and pastors who were living among the Hazara people in Afghanistan. They officially, get this, they officially registered their faith as Christian. I think outside looking in, it might seem foolish. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you tell the very government that is seeking to oppress you? Now, we'll mention this. I don't think that this group would have predicted what would happen several months later. That on August 30th, you would see that the Taliban would finally secure control over the majority of the nation. And many of these same Christians would receive letter after letter. And one letter actually said this, we know who you are, what you are doing, and where to find you. Basically giving you a promise we're coming for you. And I don't say this and use this as an example for this text to make light of the circumstances that are going on over in the Middle East. But I want us to see this as a testimony. Look at the testimony of these brothers and sisters. To quote one saying that someone should make this sacrifice so the next generations can openly call themselves followers of Jesus. Certainly, these are unconventional ways to get the name of Christ out. And for us, halfway across the world, it's hard for us to proclaim the gospel for being found out, to being one of them. And I won't lie to you. My prayer is that some of you have taken the call that this summer we spent three weeks going through evangelism and what that means for your life and how to do uh, evangelism. But I won't lie to you that I think even in your obedience, you will always have to sacrifice something, especially in this department. This is where we have no fear. I mean, look at the text. When the world seems against all the things that we as followers of Christ are working towards, 
Like we can take heart in that. We can do what Paul is doing in rejoicing in that. Don't forget that back in Jeremiah, he listed out Nebuchadnezzar, one of the worst kings, as a fellow servant of God. How? Because God is in total control of this, and Paul understands it. He's rejoicing in this. This is a term of celebration, but not celebrating in his own circumstances or his abilities. He's celebrating Christ and what he's able to accomplish through the gospel. He's celebrating that Christ is being proclaimed and brothers and sisters are becoming fearless and bold to the advancing of the gospel. He is rejoicing and he doubles down on this. Notice the language in verse 18 and 19. He says he is presently rejoicing and even when the worst thing that could happen, he will continue to rejoice. How? Paul understands something that we must come to understand. Christ's worth pales in comparison to anything that this world has to offer, good or bad. Even if the world presents you the worst thing that can happen to you, those that see Christ as ultimate, that he is exalted in their lives, are able to rejoice. They're able to rejoice when life even ends in death. Again, Paul's not in the greatest of circumstances, but he maintains this unnatural optimism in his attitude. He's in prison, but he also expects, if you look down in verse 19, that he will be delivered. Only this is not the type of deliverance that we might be thinking. For Paul, his deliverance can end up in two, one of two ways, in life or in death. He could be released from prison or he can be executed. Either way, Paul says he is and will be delivered. How can Paul make such an audacious statement? One that doesn't seem to compute in our own lives. Here's how Philippians 1.21 says this. For me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Every audacious statement that Paul has made thus far in this text hinges on this reality in his life. This is the heartbeat of Paul's life. He's called to advance the gospel. Everything that he does and is is for Christ. I mean, you can even see it when he shares of his testimony about how he came to saving faith in Christ in Galatians chapter 2. Even when he lists out all of his sufferings that he has gone through, including the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. You can see it as a heartbeat of his life. Is this the heartbeat of your life? In the Greek, this text literally means for me to live Christ. To die, gain. For me to live, Christ. To die, gain. We actually add the verb is to kind of make this statement sound a little, uh, to make a little more sense to us. And I've heard one pastor say it this way. We could actually add a number of things into this text that are biblical when it comes to our obedience with living for Christ. We can say, for me to live is to honor Christ. For me to live is to preach Christ. 
for me to live, is to honor it in my body, in my flesh, as Paul says in this text. Only instead of adding faithful obedience things that we see in Scripture, we remove Christ altogether. Isn't it easy? It's easy to do so with our own life. When we decide to take our outward worship and reflect it inward on ourselves. And this is, this is my concern, is that we are all too easy and quick to live for our own comforts. For our own ambitions, for our own pleasures. We replace Christ with things that we desire. For me to live is money. For brothers and sisters, to die is to be broke. For me to live in security, to die is to be in peril. Paul knew probably better than most of us in this room what it was like to be successful. Look at Philippians 3 sometime. He lists out he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He studied under the best schools, under the best teachers. He made a name for himself. He was successful at persecuting Christians. And he lists out all of these things and he puts it, the heading over that as loss. All of these things are loss. And he puts one thing under this category of gain, and that is Christ. When he says loss, he literally means this is dung, this is filth. No matter what our accolades are, it pales in comparison to the overwhelming worth of knowing and being loved by Christ. Paul says, whether I live I receive Christ. And whether I die, I receive Christ. Either way, I receive Christ. Paul must have been the worst prisoner. I mean, think about it. Like, Paul, um, we're going to throw you into prison now. Okay. I get to live. I still, I still get Christ. Okay. Paul, um, we're going to kill you. Fine with me. If I die, I get Christ. Okay. Um, we're going to put you in a house arrest. How about that? Great. I get to spring forth gospel encouragement to church after church. They get to receive Christ. See, Paul knew something that I think that we need to understand Christ is worth anything that this world has to offer to us. He knew what he was living for. Let me ask you this question. What are you living for? Is it for something else or is it for Christ? You see, when everything in life can actually be taken from you, Christ is the one thing that can't be taken from you. And that the worst thing in life that could actually happen to you, namely death, becomes the best thing in your life. This isn't sadism. This isn't us trying to pursue a life of suffering and death. That puts glory in the wrong place. This is an unshakable confidence and hope that life doesn't truly end in death. Life leads to everlasting life with Christ. I think death has become a big fear to us because we believe 
that we are losing something that we'll never get back when in reality, the best is yet to come. Talk about singing about endless praises. The best is yet to come. And this is why Paul was conflicted in verses 22 through 26. He was conflicted about whether or not he should stay or he should go. But he knew that it was better to stay here. But he was conflicted. Anyways, oh, may we have eyes to see as Paul sees. Church, we're a community that should be longing for eternity. Jonathan Edwards used to say, may eternity be written on my eyeballs. Dude, don't you want to see it? Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to see everything that you live for is for hope to come with Christ? Maybe some of you are saying, like, I get it. I can rejoice when Christ is proclaimed. I can rejoice when my life inevitably will end in death. But what about right now? What about the present? The present sufferings that I'm going through. And this leads us to our final encouragement from Paul. He, He presents a fear that is all too real for us right now. And through this text, we can, we can see that we actually can rejoice when sufferings are without end. Look at verse 27. Look what he says, 27 and following. Look what he says about suffering. He actually doesn't use the word rejoice here, but that celebratory language is still present. He says, along with your salvation that you are granted, you are now also granted suffering. That word granted literally means gift. How is suffering a gift? That's a terrible gift. And talking about this sermon with a a brother of mine, he helped me uh, to realize this. Sometimes we receive gifts that we might not understand why we're receiving them. Like when your dad gives you that pair of jumper cables on your 16th birthday. You might not know why you receive it, but Eventually, it becomes the best gift when you need it. I don't say this to be careless or to negate any pain that any of you might be going through right now. It's very real. Your knees are buckling under the weight of the circumstances that you find yourself in. And I know that rejoicing might come later. I know that it might be hard for you to sing the songs like that we have sang this morning. It might be hard for you to believe them in your heart. But can I say this? Maybe for a truth later that you can put in your back pocket, you can hang on to for when the time is right to rejoice in Christ. Maybe these sufferings that we are going through are opportunities to see our ultimate need for Christ. You've heard it said, he's doing something. He's doing something, though you may not even see it. And he may be just wanting to draw you back to himself. The same brother encouraged me by saying, don't we live better when our lives are at a deficit? Especially in a culture where it's saying that you are God of your life. No. We need Christ. We live at a deficit in need of what Christ is for us. And Paul saw it. Paul saw that he needed it too. And he wanted to encourage this church with it. And I want to conclude with these two last thoughts. We haven't talked about what rejoicing actually looks like. And we haven't talked about how to press on in that rejoicing. See, rejoicing may not look like raising your hands 
and shouting from the rooftops in the midst of your suffering. Rejoicing might be holding on to an unshakable confidence that Christ will eventually lead us to a completed salvation one day. Maybe it's just knowing that the God who sent his son and Jesus, let me remind you, knows all too well what our present sufferings are like when he died to to pay back the debt that we owed in our sin, but not only to do that, but to purchase us back to himself. And three days later, sealing that hope for us. This is a truth that we need to be reminded of. But how? How do we rejoice? How do we press on in the midst of our darkest fears? Read the text again. Paul recognized that he needed brothers and sisters, did he not? He talked about how his own example was encouraging and giving other people's boldness to speak, to, excuse me, to speak uh, the gospel in boldness without fear. But he also noted his need for the prayers of the saints that he was writing to. And you wanna talk about living a life worthy of the gospel, we do that, look at the text, together, we do that together. Oh, may we be a church that sees the needs of our brothers and sisters in their deepest of sufferings and we care for them, we pray for them, we encourage them with a word that we might not even understand in that moment. Going back to my friend Felix, even in that moment, I didn't realize when we read Philippians 1 really what, what I was doing there, why I was reading it. I just knew that that's the text that we should be reading. God didn't speak to me in a weird supernatural way that I can't explain. It was just a text, Philippians 1. And I walked away from that conversation not feeling super confident. But before we left, Felix actually approached me and he said, thank you. He said, I want to know more about this Paul that we've read about. And I asked him, do you have a Bible? He said, no, I got him a Bible. Church, may we be a church that even in the midst of our deepest, darkest sufferings, we preach truth into people's lives. We step into their sufferings and we lift them up and carry them, even when we don't know how or know why we're in there. Church, may we live and rejoice without fear.